0: Now you can find, listen and subscribe to Chilling with Jens and the local Danfoss Climate Solution Podcast in your RevTools app. Download it from danfoss.com Service and support. Downloads. Thank you for listening in on this uh, podcast um, that is a start of a small series of uh, podcasts around commercial applications that would be typically cold rooms or walk-ins, a tour through the whole system, starting with where the magic happens, that is the evaporator. And I'm sure you know what I mean by that. Questions, comments, and suggestions, please send them to ends in one word, at danfoss.com. And With me today, I have John Broughton and Jörg Saar. You all know them, you have all met them before, at least in in your ears you have uh, met them. Um, So can any one of you, John or Jörg, tell me why are we starting starting out with the evaporator in a system? Why are we uh, looking at that as the first thing?
1: First first of all, good morning and thanks for, for having me and John here again. Yeah, Jens, you mentioned it already. That's where the magic happens, right? Uh, what we want to have from a refrigeration system is cooling. So a place, a point where we generate cold we all know we don't generate cold we take heat away which is kind of cold generation but that's that's where where it happens and then we need to control that evaporator in that evaporator we evaporate the refrigerant we need to evaporate the right amount we have to write we have to have the right size of that evaporator to fit to the compressor to the right size to fit to the airflow that goes through the evaporator and and all that kind of stuff and that's probably why we talk about it to to start where the magic happens
0: yeah that that is actually the, the point um just 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 to put a frame around what we're talking about here i I said something about commercial applications and cold rooms and stuff um but i guess we also need sort of uh, when we're talking about the evaporator itself to say okay we will uh primarily talk about air coils and also fin and tubes systems or fin and tube uh, evaporators um any reason why john
2: uh, that's a good question, Jens. Um, I mean, throughout history, um, you know, generally we've used uh, thin and tube, um, you know, coil block type evaporators. Um, there are many others, obviously plate heat exchangers for cooling a fluid, um, milk cooling springs to mind, for example. Um, then you have, uh, you know, shell and tube evaporators for water chillers. Um, but I, I would say because in commercial refrigeration, you know, generally we use a and tube evaporator. Um, then I think that's the most logical one to talk about. Um, maybe we have the opportunity for other types of applications. Yeah, uh,
0: let's see what happens. I mean, I if, think for
2: today.
1: Yeah. And then you mentioned air. Why do we talk about air coolers? well you said that in the beginning as well the typical commercial application is for example a cold room a walk-in or a commercial refrigerator freezer and that's why you where you find air coolers to cool down the air in the cold room and by that cooling down whatever you store in that cold room
0: yeah i don't know john that you have a, a special uh, a thing about air flow and throw <laughs> uh could you please explain
2: thanks Jens um yes my my particular uh, thing that i have is throw and flow um i spend a lot of time on sites and i would say i probably see two main issues regarding uh the placement of the evaporator one is that we need as a rule of thumb um Basically, the depth of the evaporator or the face of the evaporator. We need the same distance as that is um, between the back of the evaporator and the wall so that we get good air flow through our evaporator. So we get good evaporation process throughout the whole, the whole coil block. Um, we then come on to uh, flow and throw. And if we have a cold room, for example, we need to ensure that we, have, we get that cold air um, you know, in the extremities of that room. So we need to make sure that the fans fitted to the evaporator are doing their job and we don't have any, let's say, dead air within the cold room. Um, One other point that's worth noting is that if you fit a light fitting in front of an evaporator on the ceiling, if you fit that light fitting um, lengthways, um, so the same direction as the evaporator, that will basically block what's called the Coanda effect. So, as the air comes off the evaporator, it will cling to the ceiling of the cold room, and enable you to get a better throw and flow. Um, but if you have a light fitting in the way, that will basically stop that effect, and the air will then fall down. Um, so, yeah, placement of the evaporator and things on the ceiling is one of my main uh, topics of discussion whenever I'm on site. Yeah, see, so. If you're
0: capable of of placing the lights and uh, things in the room yourself, then you should actually uh, place them at the length or at the uh, the same route as the airflow is. Is that correct?
2: Yes. Yeah. I was trying to think of a way to explain it, but you've explained it very well, Jens. So uh, yeah, basically you have the the smallest amount of disruption to that air flow coming off the evaporator. Yeah.
1: And if possible, even I mean in the direction of the airflow, yes, not ninety degree to that. and you can kind of think about that a bit even as guide rails. so if if you have a light or let's say two lights, don't put that direct into the main airflow, one to the left, the other one to the right of the main airflow, so that you still keep the main airflow un undisturbed, yeah.
0: I, I I assume that this is a, a, a thing that that is quite relevant in in many cases. Um, but what about? I mean, if 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 you if you have a room which is almost full, any good advices in how to place the goods there? I'll let Yog take
1: that one. I think. Okay. <laughs> um, well, let's let's put it like that don't put the goods up to the ceiling you simply need to keep that airflow going and it, it, it really is a bit like you can imagine the airflow almost like a water flow just up there so don't put anything right up to to the ceiling because that will block the airflow as well you need a bit more than the diameter of the fan and and that's the area you need to keep free, at least that, a bit more than, than the fan so that the fan is capable of throwing that air into the room.
0: Right. So, I mean, you, you, you need somehow to, to have a fan which is capable of actually throwing the air through the whole room, actually. So is that a part of, of of dimensioning a new or a fitting a, a, an evaporator?
1: Oh, no. I, yes, but John, go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> um, there are many different
2: types of um, evaporators and many different styles of fans. Um, basically, if you need to get a flow and throw from an evaporator, um, there's, there's many types, um, probably coaxial fans or uh, I've had them called propeller fans before now. Um, they will they will give a good air throw. Um, so depending on the size of your room, you need to make sure that the evaporator has the correct type of fan to give you that uh, air throw. And that will come from the evaporator manufacturer themselves. Um, other things you can do um to improve the air throw if you have let's say two evaporators in a room if you put them uh, let's say side to side but maybe a little bit closer together the air flow from one evaporator will merge into the air flow from another evaporator and that will actually increase your air throw by around 20 percent so there's there's things you can do within the room um, and also placement of the evaporators as well. You know, put one on one wall, one on the opposite wall, depending on the size of your your room itself. Right. Yeah.
1: John, what do you think about these textile tubes, which you can place on an evaporator to guide the air maybe for a longer distance if you have a, a very large code room?
2: Um,
1: I've only ever come across, and
2: we term them in the UK, air socks which uh, I guess is a fairly good description. Um, And generally, I've seen them in uh, meat cutting rooms, things like that, so that you get the air distribution, but you don't get that high velocity. So, the workers Mm. in there, you know, it might be uh, plus three degrees C, uh, plus five degrees C in a a cutting room. So, Mm. if you have air uh, velocity around the worker they're going to feel really cold so generally they would use an air sock system to distribute the air but keep the velocity very low um, so i've seen them um, in the applications that i've worked on they work pretty well um, i've also seen them in packing holes for crisps uh, potato chips um, doing exactly the same thing. Um, I think the only issue that we had on uh, one particular site was that the socks used to get quite dirty um, mm. and then obviously limit the amount of air that was passing through the sock itself. Mm. Um, but yeah, I mean, that that's one way to keep that air velocity down but still have the uh, movement of, of air around the space but i've not nice. seen them in a let's say i've not seen them in a typical commercial cold room or, or deep freeze application anything like that it's generally been in a, a process hall of some description
0: speaking of of uh, blockage of 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 uh, air i guess we also need to address uh, defrosting any particular things we should talk about when when uh, talking about defrosting
1: Yes, it's quite often totally underrated. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, yeah, a lot of a lot of code rooms or a lot of units simply don't work as they should because the evaporator is partly or heavily blocked with ice, and and that is because the defrost is not working as it should. That that a very general thing. Yeah, how should it work, Jörg? Mm-hmm. Well, in, in general, it should work in a way that, and that's again very general now, to it should work in a way that you do not build up too much ice. You will build up some ice, and that's okay. But then you need to somehow get rid of that ice again to free up your evaporator again so that your evaporator can continue to do the job it should do let the magic happen and produce some cooling and there are different possibilities how you defrost a system there is electric there is hot gas There, there might be natural that there might be brine but there are two main ones which which are used which is electric and and hot gas or sometimes even even reversed cycle on heat pumps, for example, in cold rooms. I don't see that too often. Okay.
0: <clears throat> Talking about uh, hot gas defrosting. Um, is that a thing that you see
2: often in, uh, say, smaller commercial systems? Um, me personally, no, Jens. To be honest, in in commercial refrigeration generally, I just see electric defrost. Um, in industrial applications, in uh, let's say supermarket applications, then you can see hot gas, you can see cool gas, um, defrosting, things like that. Um, And again talking about one of my my rules of thumb, if you use something like a hot gas defrost, because the hot gas is actually inside the tubes of the evaporator, you need something in the region of about 40% um, or 60% less of the electrical load that you would need for electric defrost. Um, so hot gas defrost is, let's say, more energy efficient, but then it's also more um, complicated is a bit of a difficult word to say. but you need the uh, control system and the extra pipes and everything built into the refrigeration system so generally in the commercial world um, it is electric defrost
1: right okay agree to that yes Um, and you mentioned it is more complex yeah however it's not that much so what you need to add is two t-pipes some pipe work and a solenoid valve that's kind of it and and you have a hot gas defrost if you like so it's it's not terribly complicated here to do that and i fully agree to john it is more efficient um there is one thing Jens, because you asked yeah what should you do during a defrost maybe i can mention a few things you should not do which sometimes which sometimes you see And one of those things is if you do an electric or a hot gas defrost, those two, I'm not talking about natural, but electric or hot gas defrost, you should switch the fan off. Because if you don't do that, you suck cold air all the time through that evaporator and you try to defrost it. Uh, That's a bit of a challenge. And by the way, that's where these socks might come in, just a short version. You have a very short sock on the outlet of your of your evaporator. And when the fan switches off, that sock kind of um, falls down because it, it stays open usually when the fan is running because of the airflow. But when you switch off the fan, it falls down and it closes the fan from the backside you do not lose any warm air from inside the evaporator. And later on, when you have defrosted, you switch the fan off again, that sock kind of expands again, and and it is like a short tube. It's it's only the length of, of the diameter of the fan, so that it just, when it falls down, closes the fan. That helps okay. you to save some energy as well. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah,
0: great, okay. Sort of a valve thing, yes get yeah. it. Yeah,
1: um, and then now we, we've, we sorry, please go ahead. Jörg. Yeah, and maybe, maybe now that we talk about that, um, natural defrost, oh, if, yeah. in case somebody wonders what that is, well, if, if you have, let's say, a cold room that operates on six or eight degrees Celsius, you are above the point of freezing. What you can do is simply switch off your compressor or that evaporator that you have maybe by a solenoid valve and keep the fan running and then the fan sucks this air which is warmer than, than the point of freezing through the evaporator and it melts the ice and by that you even kind of recycle a bit of that heat you already or that cold you already produced to build up the ice. You keep that cold in the cold room whilst you melt the ice. But that, of course, only works when you have temperatures a bit above the point of freezing. Below, nah, it's going to be mm. challenging.
2: Yeah, definitely. One one interesting um, form that springs to mind uh, Jens and Jörg is from, from years ago. And this was actually in a deep freeze cold room was water defrost. Okay. Um, And it was quite efficient, actually. Um, Basically, there was a spray bar on the back of the evaporator um, and we we sprayed ambient temperature water uh, onto the back of the evaporator and it melted the ice. Um, Worked pretty pretty well. that I've only ever seen it once, and that's, uh, you know, once since I started in refrigeration, which is many years ago now. Um, but I've never seen it since. But uh, that always intrigued me at first because you had the the feeling this is never going to work. Um, but it actually worked quite quite well.
1: Yeah, and now that, that you mentioned that, John, um, there's one other point. Good that you said water. When you defrost, you generate water. Of course, that drops away, you collect that water and it flows through an evacuation pipe out of your cold room. That water is happily doing that as long as that evacuation pipe is warm enough, especially in a freezer cold room. That means you need to heat that ev- evacuation pipe. If you don't do that, it's blocked and you build up ice where, at places where you certainly don't want to have that. Mm.
2: Yeah, that, okay. is, that is that is very, very true. Uh, and that comes down to that famous question is regarding the heater tape that you put around the drain pipe. Do you wrap it around the drain pipe or do you place it in the drain pipe? Yeah. And uh, you will get, uh, yeah, 50% of people saying, no, you wrap it around and the 50% saying, no, you put it inside. Um, and th- the other interesting thing regarding drain pipes is if you use plastic drain pipe and you put heater tape on it, for a long span, you can actually get the drain pipe to, you know, sag in the middle. Um, so then you you really don't. Uh, then you have some real challenges trying to get rid of the water.
1: Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Uh, you see some strange things. How, how would you stop a defrost, John? Best way um, to stop uh, the defrost?
2: <laughs> I would have an engineer in the cold room looking at the back of the, evapor- <laughs> the evaporator going, yeah, it's clear of ice, turn it off. um unfortunately we don't have that possibility so then we have the vagaries of the defrost termination thermostat so we place a uh, temperature sensor in the coil block and we set that to terminate at a temperature um the question is what temperature do we set it and where do we put that sensor Mm -hmm. um there is some good information from evaporator manufacturers who will say um a third down from the top and two thirds in um, is the uh, ultimate place to put it. But I'm sure, as every engineer listening to this knows, as soon as you place it somewhere, the ice will stay in another part of the evaporator. So, yeah, that's, I think that's always been a challenge. And the the the, the person who comes up with a perfect solution, uh, yeah, will get a round of applause from me for sure.
0: Murphy's law for you, isn't it?
2: Yes. Exactly. No, no matter where, where, no matter where you place the sensor, the ice will be somewhere else. It's guaranteed. Yeah.
1: So if you want yeah. to keep something ice-free, place the sensor, um, not there. <laughs> no, just joking. <laughs> yeah, very true. <laughs> just joking. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Now, sort of taking a few step backwards uh, and and looking at the entire. Uh, evaporator itself if i've understood the function of a evaporator the the, the principle of uh, uh, an evaporator it's it's not very flexible in its uh, performance so to speak it is designed for a certain performance that is both temperature wise capacity wise etc etc is there any way that you could actually provoke a certain flexibility with an uh, an evaporator?
1: Mm. Mm. Um, um, yeah, go ahead, John.
2: Yeah, no, that, that's a, a interesting question. And for as long as I can remember, and that's a lot of years now, um, we had an evaporator and it was matched to let's say the condensing unit. So you had a balance point of where the evaporator would evaporate at, and then you had a a TD, a temperature difference on that evaporator, and that's what you got. Um, The only way that I would, that I've seen it done is with interlaced evaporators. So you would have two circuits within the evaporator, two expansion valves, so that you could run one circuit or both circuits, depending on the amount of duty that you needed. Um, and then the other question I get asked on a frequently ba- on a frequent basis is two-speed fans. But honestly, I've never seen two-speed fans on an evaporator. So the only way I've ever seen it is with interlaced coils. Um, so you could have 50% duty, 100% duty. Um, of that evaporator but obviously then that would be have to be matched to the refrigeration system that could also give you uh, the refrigeration compressor that could give you 50% or 100% mm-hmm.
1: yeah agree and if you look at that a bit from a theoretical point of view th- there are some parameters for for an evaporator typical air cooler fin and tube air cooler they are they are designed for a, a certain superheat to to temperature difference ratio. So let's say you evaporate at minus 10, your air temperature is zero. So the temperature difference between your air temperature and your evaporation is 10 Kelvin. Now the best superheat setting would be approximately six and a half Kelvin for that, because that that factor of superheat to temperature difference is usually around 0.65. So 0.65 times the temperature difference between evaporation and and air gives you a pretty good superheat setting for that evaporator. You can use the evaporator with different ratios. So you you could make that worse deliberately. But then you only kill the performance of the evaporator, but you don't really adapt it to to a need or make that more flexible. you You just make it worse. If you would set the the um the superheat in that case, let's say to fifteen Kelvin instead of six and a half, you make the evaporator a good deal more worse, and the whole system, of course, a good deal more worse. That's how you could kill capacity, but you make that thing very, very inefficient. You don't want to do that.
2: Mm, I guess the, the opposite of that, yog would be to run a very low superheat and have it almost fully flooded. But then <coughs> if we're talking uh, DX refrigeration system, we don't want liquid coming back down the suction line to our compressor.
1: Yes, correct.
2: So if we're talking commercial DX, systems then yeah i agree six and a half uh k superheat is yeah the way to go
1: yeah at 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 10 delta if if your delta is bigger well then your superheat gets a bit larger these these evaporators are really designed for that ratio and you find that even in in standards and you you quite often find that in in documentation for the evaporators Mm-hmm. Correct. And the rest yeah. is, as you said, Jens, yeah, you select, and John knew as well, you select an evaporator for a specific task, for a specific condensing unit. You have calculated how much capacity you need, and that's what you select for.
0: Being a practical guy, I would actually start, I would, when I'm, I'm, I'm uh, sizing an evaporator, I would probably go for, say, 15 percent more than than actually needed would there be any consequences from that
1: no not not from an operational point of view that that works all fine if you oversize the the um, evaporator compared to the compressor size that that's okay undersizing that's difficult oversizing that works fine
2: okay Mm. i would agree um, I, I could give, let's say, three very quick examples of, of what would happen. And really, it all comes down to the to the humidity that's in the room. And that becomes an issue depending what we're actually storing in the cold room. If it's mixed goods, then not so much of an issue. But if it's, let's say, something, a product that is sensitive to humidity, then that can give you some challenges. So let's take three examples. If we had an evaporator and a condensed unit, both doing three kilowatts and they were matched, we'd have approximately 80% humidity within the room. So our TD on the cooler would be eight Kelvin. If we then said, okay, let's make the evaporator uh, 3.4 kilowatt and the condensing unit three kilowatt, then our TD reduces to seven. So our humidity goes up a little bit if we so that generally is not too much of an issue higher humidity is not again too much of an issue but depending what we're storing in the cold room but as jog said if we then have the condensing unit that is larger than the evaporator so we have a condensed unit 3.4 kilowatt and the evaporator at three kilowatt then our td is nine kelvin and then our humidity drops to 75 so a lot of it depends on what we're actually storing in the room and if it's sensitive to the humidity changes.
0: Yeah, okay. So I think you gave an example on, on sh- chocolate at some point in time.
2: I did. Um, yeah, if you get the humidity wrong with chocolate you can get whitening on yeah. chocolate. Um, so if you open a, a chocolate bar and it's uh, and it's very white, that basically means during its manufacturing process, the humidity was not correct. Um, certain things, obviously cut flowers, is a big one at this time of the year. Um, if you have a very low humidity with cut flowers, you will yeah, basically dry out the flowers and they will be no good to sell. Yeah, um, I see. Things like uh, open sushi is another classic example. You need a, a nice high humidity, otherwise you, you dry out the sushi. Yeah, yeah. Get it. great jörg any comments
1: no that that was those were really good examples no comments on that okay um i have a
0: only a few questions more actually and 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 that goes about uh multiple evaporators from the same compressor um how to control those evaporators Um, do you have any say rule of thumb to sort of give advices on or how do you see that?
1: Well, um, if you have multiple evaporators and you want to switch them on and off separately, then you need to be aware that whenever you do that, your load changes, of course, so one evaporator load one two evaporators two times the load three evaporators three times the load assuming they are the same size these evaporators so that means if you run one evaporator only you have only one third of the load and then you kind of have a far oversized compressor for that That's what you need to be aware of. So if you want to do that, it makes a lot of sense that you can adapt your compressor capacity as well by having a compressor rack or a variable speed compressor or something like that. If you don't have that, you need to be aware that your evaporating temperatures will change if you have a single fixed speed compressor and several evaporators on that one.
2: That is a good... uh, point Joerg and quite often when I'm on site you will see one condensing unit fixed speed with two evaporators and each evaporator is running off its own thermostat and as you've explained that can cause some challenges for our poor compressor uh, and the system trying to deal with that capacity change.
0: Mm. Yeah so actually I've, I've more or less haven't got any further questions. Let's just see if if the audience has any questions regarding the evaporator itself. We all know that a very, very big issue would be around the expansion valve just before the evaporator itself. Um, But the expansion valve or the expansion system, it will be a separate issue in, uh, in the series of podcasts that we're doing. You may have to be patient and wait till number four or number five, depending a bit on how deep we go into the matters. Um, so I think we'll just mention that there is something before the evaporator, which is of course the evaporative uh, expansion valve, sorry. Um, any quick comments to that, John No
1: York? Um, Only that it makes a lot of sense that we cover that in in one own session because there are quite a quite a couple of points we can discuss there.
2: Agree. And that will be a good uh, give us the circularity yens back to today, really, when we're just talking about the evaporator itself. Yeah. Great. Yeah.
0: Okay, so thank you so much for attending and thank you for your patience with my, not always very clever questions, but still um, just a curious soul. So bear with me and the silly questions I have. Thank you so much, guys. Thank you. Thanks
1: a lot for your good questions, Jens. (laughs) Thank you so much, guys, for uh,
0: listening in on this podcast. And uh, we all... All three of us are looking forward to the next podcast, which will, of course, be about compressors. So see you next time or listen to you next time. Thank you so much.